Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 356. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lendit FinTech. Before we get started, I want to talk about the 10th annual Lendit FinTech USA event. We are so excited to be back in the financial capital of the world, New York City, in person, on May 25th and 26th. It feels like fintech is on fire right now with so much change happening, and we will be distilling all that for you at New York's biggest fintech event of the year. We have our best lineup of keynote speakers ever with leaders from many of the most successful fintechs and incumbent banks. This is shaping up to be our biggest event ever as sponsorship support is off the charts. You know you need to be there, so find out more and register at lendit.com. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Carlos Domingo. He is the CEO and founder of Securitize. Now, Securitize is a super interesting company. They are really focused on tokenizing assets, putting them onto the blockchain. If you don't really know what I'm talking about there, you're in luck because we go into great depth about exactly what that means and the types of assets that they are tokenizing. And we talk about how they've built their market. They've got a primary market and a secondary market, the scale that they're at, as I said, how the mechanics work and why companies should raise capital this way. Uh, We also talk about DeFi, about some of the traditional investment bank that's on their cap table. Carlos also gives his vision for the future of capital raising. It was a fascinating conversation. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Carlos. Hi, Peter. Thanks for the invite. My pleasure. So why don't you get started by giving listeners a little bit of background about yourself? I'd love to kind of hear some of the, the career highlights to date. Good. So yeah, I'm originally from Spain, from Barcelona, studying computer science there. Moved to Japan very early on. That was like the first experience abroad. I did my master and then PhD university called the Tokyo Institute of Technology, which is kind of like the MIT in Japan, and, and then started my professional career there during the dot-com times. Started with a company <laughs> startup that went public in what was Nasdaq in Japan at that time, which basically opened during the dot-com time. When the company went public, um, we acquired uh, eventually three companies in the US, so I moved to manage one of the companies first, and that was my experience living here on the West Coast, and then eventually managed all the operations for this uh, public utility company outside the US. We were doing software for creative professionals, basically. And then when the downturn came, obviously, you know, everything, <laughs> as you might remember, was in very bad shape. You know, Nasdaq Japan actually closed, so we ended up getting delisted and there was a lot of drama around. So kind of work on turning around the situation for a while. And then in 2006, I, you know, was recruited by a telecommunications company called Telefonica. So I moved back to my home country for the first time uh, to work. I worked there for eight years, basically focused on on the non-connectivity side of the business, what was called digital at the time for telcos to try to provide services beyond connectivity. And I was lucky enough, I hit the the year before the iPhone came up, which really transformed the industry in, in a big way. And, you know, Telefonica was particularly active there. And after eight years, well, I think all telcos suffered the same problem of not actually being able to monetize beyond, let's say, the basic connectivity services that uh, that they were providing. So I then left Telefonica, moved to another telco 
in the Middle East, in Dubai, and then set up their uh, digital operations for a period of time. And at some point, I just got bored of telecommunications because uh, there's not much happening. Mm-hmm. So um, I was looking for all these uh, things to do. And fintech was something I was particularly interested in because of my background with you know, software and products as well as regulated entities. And then I kind of stumbled upon blockchain in 2016 when Ethereum launched. Some of my friends started you know, issuing tokens in Ethereum, did some of the early ICOs. And I got fascinated about the space and about the possibilities and decided to then move full-time into blockchain. And, and here I am today. All right. But at the same time, I know that you started a venture capital firm. And so maybe before we talk about Securitize, I'd love to get your sense about why start a venture capital firm today and what uh, where venture capital is at and what you saw as something that was missing. So at that time, this is when the whole ICO space was booming in 2016. You know, I had a friend that was trying to raise a, a venture capital firm. And that was the first, you know, VC that he was trying to do. And then because the whole token space started and people were raising money with tokens uh, on on the internet using blockchain, I kind of suggested why don't we, you know, do an ICO for this fund. And then I started exploring that option. And the whole idea was, well, you can then give access to venture capital to, you know, any investor potentially, which venture capital, as you know, is, is primarily the realm of institutional investors. And the second thing is venture capital has one problem, which is an asset class is extremely liquid, right? And it has got worse over the years because of how companies tend to go public uh, much later than they used to. So mm-hmm. the second idea was, well, if we do a token for the fund, then you can, they can then provide liquidity for this token that represents the LP interest. And then what happened is that then we realized, well, you cannot do this in the way ICOs were being conducted back then, because obviously a token that represents the LP interest of fund is a security. And then, you know, we were early on one of the first teams in the space that kind of recognized these tokens are probably uh, securities. And rather than try to bypass regulations or play regulatory arbitrage, which a lot of people did back then and still doing in the crypto space, we then decided to conduct what it was one of the first security token offerings, where basically you issue a token that represents security, in this case, the LP interest of the fund. And the whole idea was, well, then we can provide liquidity to it. It obviously took years for this to be a reality, but eventually uh, ended up happening. And today, SpiceBC uh, is trading uh, in two different regulated marketplaces, and, and it's a very different kind of uh, VC from that perspective. Okay. And so um, I want to go to Securitize. And Matt, how do you describe Securitize today? Securitas is basically a company that focuses on the digital asset securities space. So we basically help companies to basically tokenize real-world assets, uh, which in the majority of the instances, these are categorized as, uh, as securities. And then we have a number of SEC licenses that allow us to basically issue tokens that represent securities, manage those tokens and the compliance, conduct asset servicing, and then help them both you know, sell tokens to investors through a broker dealer as well as provide liquidity through the secondary marketplace that we have. So we have kind of an end-to-end life cycle for tokenized assets on the blockchain. So when you say tokenized assets, can you give the average layperson a description of exactly what you mean there? Yeah, so we focus on, on private capital markets. Public markets are have a different set of problems, but on private capital markets, you know, typically securities are not properly digitized or, or they're not digitized at all, that creates all sorts of problems, right? From tracking cap tables to be able to prove ownership of a security to be able to then trade them uh, efficiently, etc. right? So, so tokenizing these securities is a way for providing a native digital representation on the blockchain of the ownership of the security with all the implications that that 
has in terms of being able to then trade it and give it to somebody else or being able to prove that you own it and then receive dividends in a very efficient way and all the type of asset services that go along with, with securities. So the, the assets that you're tokenizing then are basically equity in private companies. Is that the main asset or there, is there anything else you're doing? We are a bit of a, if you want asset class agnostic, we focus definitely on private markets. That's our thing. And yes, obviously, equity in companies is, is one that we've done a lot, but we also have tokenized debt products. We've also tokenized funds, REITs, uh, and all the type of, uh, of security. So we're not necessarily focused on one particular asset class. We're, we're multi-asset from that perspective. Because the, the tokenization process is very, very similar, right? In terms of what you need to do and the technology you need to use, even if the underlying security represents something different. Right, right. Okay, so then can we go through the mechanics of this? Like, just say I'm a private company, I've got a pretty you know, detailed cap table, everyone's got different slices of ownership of the company, and we say, okay, we want to tokenize this. Well, maybe for a start, what is the advantage in doing that? Why should we do that? So typically companies, the way they track their cap table is pretty inefficient, right? Because you use either paper because yeah, you just make Google Sheets. <laughs> uh, subscription agreements, you can have Google Sheets, you can have glorified Google Sheets, which are cap table management companies, products that basically contain the content of this. But the problem with, with that approach is that it actually is not a guarantee, let's say, proof of ownership, right? Because this is manual, you know, it's, it's people are managing that and somebody is in a law firm or somebody is actually inputting the data there. If somebody behind the scenes for any reason has sold their shares on a private transaction, then that doesn't get reflected there. And then also those representations of securities typically do not contain the compliance rules. They're not enforceable. So like if you are on a cap table and you have one year lookup, you know, you can have someone can go and delete you from the cap table and that there's nothing to prevent it, right? So if you think about what blockchain is, blockchain is basically this cryptographically secured public ledger where you can actually write something and assign it to a person through a, a wallet, and that's an, an irrevocable proof of ownership. And if the token moves, you can actually track that that token representing a security has actually moved from one investor to another. And you can programmatically use smart contracts to basically enforce transfer restrictions. Right? Let's say if I give you a token that represents security and you have one year lockup period, I can use smart contracts to guarantee that you will not move the token to some other investor before the one year lockup period has expired. And that when you move it, that is actually a legal transaction of a security and that we will update the cap table. So we basically use this blockchain as a ledger to represent natively the ownership of the securities and all the compliance rules that go around it. Okay. So then, so I'm a company with my cap table on a Google sheet. You've got some legal agreements in place about lockups and, and different things like that. What you do is you, you take all the documents, some of them are text and some of them are spreadsheets, and then you sort of move all that onto the blockchain. You copy it and you create, obviously, smart contracts that kind of drive how this works. I mean, maybe rather than me explain it, can you just maybe get a little bit more granular there and just like when you're signing up a new company, what actually happens? There's two scenarios, right? There's companies that have an established cap table and they just want to move it in the blockchain and manage the securities there. And then there's companies that want to issue new securities. Right now, because they are basically raising money, right? So, in either one of the cases, that for every investor, whether it's a new investor that comes on board or whether it's an existing investor, we will basically create an identity of that investor, and then we will attach a wallet to the investor, and then we'll deposit the tokens that represent the number of, let's say, shares that the investor owns into that wallet. So that's your, you know, irrevocable proof of ownership into that security, and then we'll read through 
you know, the legal restrictions of that security, whether it's locker period or whether it's, you know, only for credit investors or whatever other rules. And then the smart contracts will be coded to reflect those legal constructs around the restrictions of the of the security. And once that is done, then everything is natively digital and then you can then unlock a lot of other possibilities, right? Like if you, let's say if you need to pay a dividend, you can efficiently distribute it to the wallets that contain tokens, knowing exactly that those are the actual owners of the securities. Believe it or not, that, that's not how it works in real life. Uh, or if you want to trade, then you can efficiently allow people to trade or not, depending on whether the compliance rules allow them to do or not, and then track the new owner of the securities and always know who holds the securities. That's how it would work. Okay, so then I'm the owner of equity in this company, and now I have a wallet. Is this like a MetaMask wallet? I mean, what type of wallet is that? How do I see my what equity I own? So there's two options why right? you can use a MetaMask wallet. These are self-custodian wallets. We support MetaMask, Coinbase, and, and a bunch of other wallets. Uh, pretty much any, any Web3 wallet uh, will be supported there. We're talking about Ethereum in this case. And then the other option is that you don't want to custody your own securities, and then you use a, a qualified custodian, like let's say Coinbase uh, custody or BitGo or somebody, and then you will have an account with them and your tokens will be deposited with them that represent the securities. And then basically by looking at the wallet and seeing how many tokens you have there, you know how many securities you want. Right, right. Okay. Okay, so then when I'm looking at your website here, you do have a number of companies that are on your platform, including your own VC companies. So how are you going out to find these companies? How do people get included on this platform? So we started first as what you see on the platform today is, is the broker-dealer, which allows companies to basically sell securities to investors, as well as the secondary marketplace that allows tokens to be traded on secondary after they've been issued. Then basically before doing that, what we did is we had a transfer agent. So we basically been a white label product for all companies that could then tokenize and manage the securities on the blockchain, but not raise money or trade. And we have more than 250 customers using the platform that way. And then last year when we launched our own, let's say marketplace, we then went through a process of actually selecting the ones that we think will, are going to be successful, right? the ones that we think they're going to raise money, that the product is, uh, you know, the, the valuation is the right one, that the project is legit, interesting, that we think is going to fit with our audience, etc. And the same for secondary market, right? So try to identify the ones that we think will have some degree of liquidity. Of course, these are private securities, so they're always going to be less liquid than public securities, but nevertheless, they, it's better than zero, right? Which is the usual situation for private securities. Can anyone then, I'm looking at some of the offerings like there's Protoss and Exodus Movement, Blockchain Capital, different companies that have a price. I imagine that's per share or per token, I imagine. Like, do I need to be an accredited investor? Can anyone, Cohen, just buy these tokens? Our licenses allow us to do both retail and accredited investors. Whether a retailer and accredited can actually go and trade or not, one security depends on, on the regulatory construct of the security, right? So some of the securities we have listed, like let's say SpiceMC or Blockchain Capital or Exos, they are available for retail. Some other ones are actually not because either they went through a different regulatory process in terms of how they issue securities, or in some cases, some companies want to restrict trading only to accredited investors for their own reasons, right? So, so the answer is it depends, but what we want is to try to have as many as possible that are available for retail especially in the secondary market, because part of what we want to do is basically democratize access to private capital markets, right? And that's the, the philosophy, right? That these asset classes like VCs and, you know, startups and things like that, traditionally, they've been the realm of institutional investors, and it's very difficult to access for, for individual investors. So that's the, the whole idea. If you think about 
institutional investors typically have around 30% of their portfolio allocation into, let's say, alternative assets as a broader category, right? So VC, private equity, real estate, you know, private companies, et cetera. But retail investors, for the most part, they have very little exposure to, and by retail, I mean individual investors, it could be retail or accredited, but individual investors have very little exposure in their in the portfolio to alternative assets, right? So increasing that and giving them the option to increase that allocation and being able to invest like a professional investor does is part of the goal. Right, right. And so just looking at your primary market offerings, you've got a really big range of different things here. You've uh, got a, a Bitcoin yield fund, an ETH yield fund, and you've got real estate opportunity in Belize. You know, you've got stablecoin funds. So how do these things make it onto your platform? In our platform for primary, we have two uh, types of assets. We have some of them that are issued by ourselves, by a registered investor advisor we own called Securitized Capital. So most of the crypto-related ones, the yield funds for Bitcoin, USDC, the, the Standard & Poor funds that we do in partnership with Standard & Poor, those are actually issued by ourselves. And then we put them on the platform for investors to be able to access them. And then the other ones that you see, like we have an entertainment series called Huddle. We have the real estate asset in Belize that you mentioned, et cetera. Those are like third party that basically approach us to basically listing our platform and be able to raise money with a security token from our investor pool. Okay. And so if I want to invest in, say, the ETH yield fund, for example, that I presume that's available to non-accredited investors, is it? And what is needed as far as like, how do I invest? So that actually is for accredited investors. Okay. You know, making a fund available to retail investors is a complicated process in terms of registration of the fund, right? So for operating businesses, there is exemptions like Reg CF or Reg A Plus that allow you to do retail, but for funds, it's more complicated. So in that particular case, that's a fund that is only available for accredited investors. And then in terms of the process, you can go there, you can actually review the, you know, the information memorandum of the fund, understand what it does. And obviously, because these are securities, there's a lot of disclosures around what the fund contains and how it operates. And then you will have to create a securitized ID with us. So we need to, obviously, these are securities, so we need to know who the investor is. And then you will have to basically pass KYC. And then we will also do AML checks on you at the beginning and also on a recurring basis. Uh, and then in that case, because it's, it's only available for accredited investors, then we'll ask you to do accreditation with us. And the beauty of this is that once you've done it for once and you've created this securitized ID, it's like an investor passport that then the next time you want to invest in another product, we don't have to go through this process again, which eliminates a lot of the friction, which is also something problematic for private assets, right? That every time you want to invest in a private asset, you have to do KYC again, you have to pass KML, you have to do accreditation, etc. So by, by creating this portable investor ID, we basically eliminate the friction after the second, after the first one, let's say. Right. And then once you're there, then you, you click, you put how much money you want to wire, you sign subscription agreements, depending on the product. In some cases, you can pay crypto. In some cases, fiat, that's up to whoever is the issuer. And once you've funded the securities, you will see them on your securitized ID or your investor account, and then you can then register a wallet and receive the tokens. So can you invest through a retirement account yet in a self-directed IRA? Do you work with any custodian there? Yeah, so we have a partnership with a company called Alto IRA. We've had it for a while that basically allows you to deposit security tokens in an IRA. I just had the CEO of Alto on my podcast just published it yesterday as we're recording this. So that's great. Good to know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a good coincidence. What is the fee structure then? I imagine it differs somewhat between investments, but can you give us some sense of the fees? 
Actually, for investors, there's no fee. If they invest in a fund, the fund might actually have fees in terms of AUM. In, in our case, the funds that we issue have very low fee of 0.5% per year. For third parties, like if, let's say you buy on this as a real estate project that we have, you as an investor don't have any fees, right? What they might have is fees for managing the, the right. fund itself. And then in our case, we actually charge fees to the issuer because we're helping them raise money. But that's transparent to the investor. And so what about on the secondary market? Are there fees to trade these things? Yeah, so we actually just turned it on now. We, when we launched at the beginning, we, we had zero trading uh, for a period of time. And starting Q2, we've started charging 1% fee for the seller and 1% fee for the buyer. Okay. So the, how you make money, you make money by charging a fee for people to raise capital and it sounds like you're making a small slice on the secondary market. Are there any other ways you make money? Well, we basically also manage the securities for these customers so that the securities and their cap table and the investor accounts, everything sits in, in an instance of our platform. And therefore, we charge the issuer a fee as a transfer agent. You want It's like a SaaS fee, so basically a fee to set up the platform and then a monthly recurring fee. And then if they want to raise money, then obviously there is a fee involved with raising money. Once they trade, the issuer doesn't pay anything, but the, the investors, both selling and, and buying, are the ones paying the fee. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Again, who, who are the typical investors? Like what types of people uh, are investing with you guys? We have a lot of retail um, because we've done a lot of projects for retail. And then many of the ones on the secondary market are available for retail trading. We do have a, a decent chunk of uh, accredited investors. Those are primarily the ones that go through primary because most of the things we list in primary are for accredited investors. And then we have very few institutions. So we our focus has been, as I mentioned, in democratizing access to to private capital markets, right, and alternative investments. And therefore, from that particular perspective, our focus has been on, on the individual investor that typically doesn't have access to these products. And they will have to basically buy mutual funds or ETFs or public stocks, and that's the only thing they have available. Right. So can you give us some sense of the scale you guys are at? I mean, what what volume is going through your platform? How many investors? So we have uh, around 450,000 investors that have created securitized IBs with us uh, over the years. And then we have 250 companies that we manage as a transfer agent. We also recently purchased another transfer agent that has 750,000 investor accounts and around 3,000 issuers. So in aggregate, we're on the top 10 of transfer agents per per investor accounts. Uh, And of course, not all of them are are trading on primary and secondary because this is newer for us so that we're in the process of mobilizing this. But we're starting to see good volumes. Uh, the, The collective primary issues that we're doing are close to 500 million at the moment. So, so that's that part of the business, which is newer for us, is starting to take off. Right. And I imagine you're the largest transfer agent on the blockchain, right? Oh, yeah, that by far. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> A company looking to raise capital, I'm looking at, you know, why should they come to Securitize to raise capital? I mean, imagine, you know, there's obviously the traditional capital raising route where you can you, know, you hire uh, an investment bank and you go out to you know, VCs and what have you, and you go raise money. Why should they come to securitize? Well, there's two reasons, right? Like sometimes people want to have their community be able to be part of the project. And if you go to a traditional fundraiser, it's going to put you in touch with institutions and VCs and private equity firms and things like that. And sometimes I think that there is a tendency that, especially on, on crypto-related projects where, you know, you want your customers to become shareholders because then they have a financial incentive to be loyal to you and to become like brand advocates and promoters of the project, right? So that's one of the reasons to do it this way as opposed to the traditional way by giving them tokens and being able to have a broad distribution of your of your race. You're basically creating a community of funds, right? So that's one of the reasons. The other one is sometimes we want to access a different investor pool. Um, 
than the traditional one. So, and then that also helps on this, uh, the liquidity in the secondary market if they're planning on, on listing down the road, right? Because if you raise from traditional sources and you have like four investors, five VCs, the VCs also don't need liquidity because their business model is not to be liquid. And therefore, if you want to provide liquidity to investors, that's not, not going to be a good way of raising money, right? Right. So are these like Reg A, Reg A plus offerings? Is that how you're doing it from a legal perspective? We've done everything. We've done Reg CF, which is regulation crowdfunding, which was lifted to the 5 million recently. So it's becoming more and more popular because 5 million is a decent threshold. And I think in the past, because it was 1 million, it was very limiting. We've done Reggae Plus, which again was raised from 50 to $75 million. In fact, the, the first, and I believe it's still probably the only one of the Reggae Plus offerings that had actually done 75 million raise was done with us for a company called Exodus Communication, which now trades in our secondary market. And then the large majority of primary are Reg D and Reg S. So Reg D 506C, which allows for public solicitation in the US, which has an unlimited amount of money you can raise, but it's only restricted to accredited investors. And Reg S, which is the equivalent of Reg D for non-US investors, where you basically need to follow regulations of each jurisdiction where those investors are. Right, right. Okay. Okay. I want to talk about um, DeFi briefly here. I've heard you actually talk before about the institutional DeFi space, which I would say is, some would argue is an oxymoron, but um, I'm curious about how you view the DeFi space. Obviously, it feels still pretty nascent when it comes to institutions. How do you view it and how are institutions getting on board? First, I think DeFi is a fascinating space and it's one of the biggest, if you want innovation that the crypto space has brought into because it's, it has like basically two things that are very innovative. One is it's a very simple way of creating warehouse facilities if you want for borrowing and lending, right? And then the second is that they have this concept of automated market making where you can basically make things that are otherwise illiquid more liquid, right? Because you allow people to contribute to a liquidity pool. I think those things are, are fascinating. We see in the future that this will have applicability for digital asset securities as well, even though there's regulatory barrier there that we need to cross. And in terms of institutional adoption, I think you're right that DeFi as it is today, the talking about institutional DeFi is an oxymoron because there's no institutions that will touch DeFi the way it is today. For a very simple reason, because DeFi today is purely anonymous and permissionless, right? So if you go to a DeFi pool and you you know lend money to somebody, you don't know who is taking them the other side of the of the trade. And the same thing if we contribute to liquidity to a an automated market maker. And that's for individuals that might be fine, but you know, for institutions, you might have on the other side of the trade somebody that is a sanctioned person from let's say Russia now, or or somebody from Afghanistan or from North Korea. You, you have basically no idea who you're interacting with, right? Uh, it's, there's no KYC, there's no AML, there's no tracking of the origin of the funds. And so this obviously poses a problem for institutions, but they are all looking at this because they think it's a great innovation that you know eliminates a lot of friction for producing, you know, for those type of financial services, right? So when we talk about institutional DeFi, we're thinking about at least at the minimum level, putting some sort of KYC and AML layer on top of the wallets that interact with the liquidity pool because otherwise institutions will not be adopting it, right? So... Right. Yeah, we're still, I feel that's coming. I know lots of companies that are working on that. So speaking of large institutions, you've got um, Morgan Stanley, I noticed is on your cap table. They invested in your Series B last year. I guess I'd love to know about your conversations with a company like Morgan Stanley, because obviously they're one of the largest investment banks. They do massive deals and IPOs and different things that you're disrupting. I know you can't probably put words in their mouth, but tell us a little bit about the conversations you had with the Morgan Stanley people. 
Yeah, we have Morgan Stanley as an investor. Uh, they actually still the board as well. It's not the only financial institution we have as investors. We actually, in the past, we raised money before from Moro Capital, which is the venture capital firm owned by Banco Santander, which is one of the largest banks in Europe. We also have raised money from Japanese institutions like Mitsubishi UFJ, which is the lar- largest bank there, Sumitomo Mitsubishi Trust Bank, Nomura Securities, etc. I think what the reason these companies are interested in a company like ours is because First, by us being regulated and playing on the regulated side of things, it's a safer investment to them to get exposure into crypto as opposed to crypto companies that are operating in the, if you want, gray area from regulatory perspective or completely unregulated offshore. And second is because I think they all recognize that the current way capital markets are structured is a bit broken, right? There's so many intermediaries, there's so many inefficiencies, there's so distribution of alternative assets is limited because of friction involved in the process, uh, et cetera. And they see this as potentially the, the future of capital markets. And I think that for them to do it themselves will be too much because obviously these are very, very large, as you said, incumbents in the industry. And I think what they're doing is let's place some bets on a smaller company like ours, let us flourish, let's say, and provide support because eventually that's what they need to be looking at doing. But today it's too small for them to do it themselves and to move the needle against their traditional business. Right, right. Okay, so maybe we can close with just uh, extending on that, what you just said there. And I'd love to kind of get your vision for the future of capital markets, raising capital, trading, securities. What's your vision for the future of all this? Look, I think that if you think about what internet brought and why internet has been so relevant is because basically internet as a public utility, if you want, you know, became this very, very efficient two-sided marketplace that brought supply and demand of in certain industries in a very efficient way, right? If you can think of advertising before internet, there was no efficient way to advertise, right? Like if you're a mass market brand like Coca-Cola, you have to advertise to everybody and not just to people that are likely to drink a Coca-Cola. And the opposite, if you're a small, let's say, restaurant, there was no efficient way for you to advertise towards your niche audience of people that live nearby where uh, the restaurant is located, right? And internet basically solved that problem by creating this very, very efficient two-sided marketplace and create kind of like the long tail of advertising. And those industries actually, as opposed to what people thought, became bigger, right? And same is advertising, commerce, content distribution. I mean, the fact that you guys distribute your podcast in an efficient way and you communicate with your people in Twitter and all that things, I has created, allow you to create this long tail of content that didn't exist before, right? So we see public blockchains as kind of like the long tail of capital markets. So basically, what public blockchains bring is a very efficient way to transact with things that represent value. Value could be currencies, could be stable coins, could be securities in our case, could be collectibles with NFTs, etc. And then public blockchains are also creating these very efficient two-sided marketplaces that transact with these things that represent value that was very difficult to do before. So if you apply this parallelism to capital markets, I think capital markets are the realm of very large banks and institutional investors for the most part, right? They're not accessible to everyday investors. They're not accessible to small companies. So we see platforms like ours and other people working on the space, creating this long tail of capital markets where suddenly both large funds can actually reach all the type of audience and individual investors and vice versa, small companies and individual investors have access to capital market functionality if you want in an efficient way that was not possible before because of the amount of intermediaries, the lack of digitization, et cetera. Interesting. Okay. Well, it's just going to be so interesting to see how this all plays out. I feel like you've uh, you know, you've really created something that you know it's great because it's 
it's regulated. It's not in a gray area. Everything's kind of, you know, here above board and um, it's a really practical application of the blockchain. And I think it's a really, it's going to be fascinating to see how this all develops. So thank you very much, Carlos, for coming on the show. Well, thanks, Peter, for inviting us. It's been my pleasure. You know, as I was just talking there, I really appreciate what uh, they're trying to do at Securitize. And I feel like it's great that there's you know, this is a really pretty clear-cut use case for blockchain, and it's pretty easy to explain, and you can see the real advantages in, you know, having uh, cap tables basically operate on the blockchain, where they're immutable, where they're transparent, with a smart contract, with cap tables that are operating in, you know, in spreadsheets or on pieces of paper. That feels like a 20th century way of doing things. And so, I tend to agree with what Carlos is saying there. This feels like something that is a natural evolution and that, you know, I imagine all companies will be operating in some kind of, you know, digital smart contract way uh, in the future. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.